I just thanks again. I know, like, uh, obviously, you're super busy and with the whole uh, graduation, I'm sure uh, you got a lot on your plate. So I just wanted to really thank you for uh, taking the taking a bit of time. Um, so for people that live under a fucking rock and don't know who you are, um, just to tell everyone a bit about you. So my name is Mr. Cogfit, a.k.a. the meme god. I'm joking about that, of course, <laughs> but I'm a certified personal trainer, certified nutrition coach, just got my bachelor's degree in psychology and philosophy, which I'm very proud of. Um, and I write about nutrition online. It's pretty much what I do. Um, used to coach people back a couple of years back before COVID and stuff, but um, I stopped doing that. And yeah, I just like talking about nutrition, talking about science, talking about reason, talking about logic, and mixing and melding all these topics together. I think what what I've seen you do really, really well was mixing the idea of uh, you bring up philosophy, so philosophy of science, and uh, just kind of melding the act science and the philosophy of things together really well. I thought that was really cool, just especially the way. You, you do it with memes as well. Just bring up being a, a meme guy. That's when I first seen you was first time. First thing I remember seeing you in was you eating fucking Doritos talking about nutrition. I was like, I got to keep checking this guy out. This is so <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, people, people really want to demonize like food and, you know, food groups. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's fucking stupid. And, and a lot of times it's not about a lack of evidence or knowledge. It's really the psychological component of, of their tribe and then their group and their community. And it's a, uh, this is a fancy word of uh, epistem, epistem, epistemology, the study of knowledge. And um, a lot of times there's an epistemic misunderstanding of science and nutrition as a science and how to think critically people don't know what critical thinking is and they think what they're doing is thinking critically when it's not um and that's when i kind of try to shit on that through humor because <laughs> it's fucking uh, stupid yeah and it's i mean we'll get into a bunch of that of course that's big reason why i wanted to to have you on because i think you're one of the best that uh, you and spencer i think are probably on the top at uh, at doing what you do but so why like number why did you really get into nutrition kind of the start like where did that uh, where did that come from so growing up i was always made fun of uh, for my weight uh because you know growing up we didn't grow up in the best socioeconomic status we ate a lot of you know highly calorically dense not nutritious foods so i racked up the weight because you know these foods have a lot of calories and it was impacting my health because they're not really nutritious so there was at a point where I was over 300 pounds, I was pre-diabetic, um, and I wanted to make a change. But for myself, you know, and also it wasn't really fair that people were making fun of me over this. Um, that's a hard part about being obese in the first place. And I was like, I want to make the change. I went on a low-carb Atkins diet, lost like 100 pounds in the span of a couple months, thought I was doing phenomenal, thought I was doing great. And then I developed an eating disorder because I was so fixated on keeping the weight off, you know, keeping the weight off. And then I realized it has to be a different way. There has to be a better way of doing this. There has to be a, a less rigid way of doing this. And that's when I started getting into science and nutritional science, because I realized that nutrition is the main name of the game. I figured that out when I lost a lot of weight. 
Um, you're not going to outrun or outlift a bad diet. You're just not. So I was like, I want to focus on the 8%, which is nutrition in my book. And then that's when I got into that. And that's when someone introduced me to BioLane Lee Norton. Um, and then that's when I got into evidence-based nutrition, really looking into that. Um, that's when I drank the, the evidence-based lemonade, so to speak. <laughs> like the rest of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, no, I think it's really valuable too that when people get loud voices, whether they um, whether it's warranted or not on the topic that they're talking about, especially when it comes to nutrition, you know, these quote unquote influencers, um, when we start to see them gain a lot of traction and say shit that makes no sense, and we know as professionals that makes no sense, but then the amount of impact those people have. Um, so to for you to kind of reach out to someone like like Lane to kind of cling on to when it came to scientific base was probably a great time in your life to be able to kind of claim to kind of claim that stake uh, with uh, with his kind of approach yeah because I always appreciated science so much like growing up I was always into science and I, I always I always wanted to see things from a factual perspective and it's just some of the the, the logic that some of the the things that were being said just didn't add up it's like, well, how did you, how do you know that? Like, how do you know this supplement works the way you're saying it? How do you know this diet works the way you're saying it? And a lot of times people don't know. And that's the thing when, when I saw Lane, he explained the inner workings of this and it didn't sound like he was selling me some bullshit like other people who they try to sound sciencey, but they're trying to sell you some bullshit. He wasn't trying to sell me any bullshit. I'm lucky I fell into seeing his content first. Um, and just the authenticity of it, you know, it didn't feel fake, it didn't feel forced, it didn't feel like he was trying to look cool, you know, because I kind of fell for that trap buying stupid shit from influencers, and it just didn't work out. Um, but then when I saw him and his information and the, the, the amount of stuff that he said that made sense and just in my mind from a person who appreciates science to begin with, it, it just blew me away. So that's when I decided to talk more about it. That's when I decided to make memes because I started following, you know, him, Spencer, and a whole bunch of other people. And then I was just like, ah, oh, like, you know, now I guess 10K, here we are. And they're trying to get to 20. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. three years later. Uh, so um, you bring up the idea of uh, disordered eating as well. I just kind of seen going through some of the, uh, some of the older posts that she made, uh, some of them were your, some of the ideas based around disordered eating. So for you, what did your disorder, what was your eating sort of like for you and kind of, how did you sort of kind of put the, the beast back, uh, back where it belongs, so to speak? So in retrospect, um, that, this thing, when, when you have problems with food, when you have a, a problematic relationship with food, I truly feel like it's a lifelong uh, battle. I don't like to say battle, but it's a lifelong thing that you go through. It's a process. Yeah, that's a better word for it. It's a process of learning how to have a better relationship with food, eat the right foods, but also and learn to enjoy the foods that you eat and realize that food is not just the macros, not just the calories, but it's also social. You know, it's also cultural. It's also psychological. And that's the reason why I started Cogfit in the first place, because I realized it was psychological. Um, and when I got to the point where I had my eating disorder, I was binging on food and, um, my purging, cause it was kind of bulimia sort of my purging was exercise. So I exercise until I almost pass out. Um, 
And I got to a point where I was looking at myself. I was 190 pounds away from 300 pounds. I was 190 pounds. And I didn't have the physique that I wanted. I, did, I still look kind of like skinny fat, sort of. And I lost all this weight. So I'm like, what the fuck am I doing that's not right? And I'm like, it started up here. What, what up here? Like, me losing the weight didn't make me feel better about myself. Up here. So I'm like, you know, how, how do I get myself to actually feel better about myself? And then I realized that, you know, actually strength training made me feel better. Eating the right foods because I actually enjoyed them made me feel better. Not because of necessarily the scale or how I looked physically, being obsessed with how I looked physically, you know. And uh, that's when I, I, I sort of ventured into that uh, anti-diet space. I liked it for, for that aspect of it. Um, but then, you know, they, they go off into extremes as well. But I started to realize it was the actual process, the behaviors of, of exercise and eating well and treating my body well that I actually enjoyed. It wasn't just um, hitting that, that number goal because it didn't make me feel better. I went yeah. from 300 to 190. Like, that's a big fucking accomplishment. That's huge. Yeah, but it didn't make me feel better. So I'm like, it's not the weight. It's something else. You know, it's something else that I'm missing. You know, and I'm still looking for that thing that really makes me feel really good in my life. And I'm still searching. But I realized that losing a shitload of weight wasn't doing it for me. It wasn't cutting it for me. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, I think it's, um, especially in the industry, people don't really see just how prevalent eating disorders really are. Um, they see these inhuman looking people or doing these crazy feats of strength or conditioning or whatever. Um, even with my own uh, disordered eating, with closet eating, actually, I spoke to, uh, I just had uh, Bridget uh, Foteau on here last week. and. Love it. Uh, it's funny because she brought, I was like, because we already talked and she was like, hey, you got to get, uh, you got to get them on here. And I was like, I have to do it. But, um, but we had a great conversation about that whole thing. And my own battles with closet eating with um, just hammering donuts or whatever, like for just giving an example, like Tim Hortons, a coffee shop up here. Um, it's about four minutes from Jim door to Tim Hortons. And I can finish 20 like donut bowls. So like 10 bits in four minutes and didn't bother me in the least it sure bothered me but it didn't it didn't it didn't really change anything that I was going to do that day um and it just kept going more and more finding more chocolate bar wrappers and shit I couldn't go into a store without uh without finding some shit even just getting a lotto ticket or whatever it was always yeah. just finding another way to eat you know so um I just I think it's important for for all of us to kind of like whoever's comfortable enough to speak about their own disorders to get that out, to know that it's normal and know that it's, it shouldn't, that it's more normal in the industry than what it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the thing, like, it, it's so complicated because there's a number of different factors for why people get uh, eating disorders. I think the, the one thing that gets me upset is when people try to distill it down to one behavior, one action, one thought that causes an eating disorder, disordered eating, when it's a multitude of different factors. For me, it was getting bullied because of my weight. You know, it was my, my self-image, my self-esteem. It was a whole bunch of culminating factors that uh, sort of pushed me to that direction. It wasn't just one thing. So when people say, you know, counting calories causes it, it's like you're trying to simplify a very complicated issue down to one nugget 
that's not necessarily true. It's like saying, you know, people, people just get depressed because um, they, they hear sad songs. It sounds stupid. It sounds ridiculous because it's not true. It's a very complicated condition. Yeah, and I just think with the, um, with the advent, because I've been around a long time and uh, way before social media, I started my, my, my coaching. Um, and to see how prevalent or how accelerated um, some of the, the diet culture has come, but let alone the, the amount of eating disorders that are kind of like in the closet, so to speak, that have kind of come out. Um, how do you think that uh, social media has really affected a nutrition information like, to the masses? So it's very easy for disinformation to reach the masses. It's very easy for sexy sounding narratives from people who seem credible to reach people um, because it's so easy to make a podcast nowadays. It's so easy to start an Instagram. It's so easy to start a YouTube. It doesn't take that much to start a social media presence where you're giving out disinformation and disinformation, um, as we know from some of the literature I've seen, spreads faster than the truth. Fake news often spreads faster than the truth and because it's often emotive, it's often easy, it's often certain. It kind of, it kind of feeds into some of the cognitive biases that we already have. Um, and sometimes even from professionals because professionals are often well-intended but they often stay nuggets that are, are half-truths. They're not totally true or um they come from a good place but it's just it's just it's not correct it's it, that's more so misinformation so that's like information that's not true but it's not meant to be it's not meant you're not you're not you don't have malintent you're not trying to give false information but you're sharing stuff that's bullshit and then there's people who share willingly share misinf like willingly share false information that's more disinformation so it's very easy for both of those to proliferate. Um, and it's really hard because nutrition is very nuanced as a science. People think that just because we can eat that we automatically understand nutrition. And that's not necessarily true at all. It, it's, there's a lot of moving parts in it. Um, I'm just starting to scratch the surface as to like some of the research, you know, um, reading prospective cohort studies, you have to know how to read epidemiology if you if you understand if you want to understand nutrition. Most people don't know that. I didn't know that, you know. Or um, it, it's it's more than just supplementation. It's more than just it's just more than just athletics. It's more than just um, getting clients to eat this amount of macros. It's a behavioral component that's sorely lacking in the literature for nutrition. You know, there's it's deeper than just one food, like blaming sugar or whatever, like fat or whatever. It's more than just that. And it's, it's so mind boggling hard for people to wrap their minds around that. So that's why I think it's super easy to share disinformation and misinformation online. And there's so many nuances that we don't understand completely yet in the field. So that's where people take advantage too. Yeah. I think when it comes to many professionals, well, okay. Many people in the industry, I'm not going to call them professionals, the people I'm going to bring up next, but um, <laughs> just the people that have this one way that worked for them and they <laughs> keep instructing the same bullshit. And I've had to work with some of these clients in the past that to try to break those barriers of say, carbs make you fat is a great one because we keep hearing that. It's uh, it's obviously a total untruth, but um, 
to get just to go try to break through those barriers that these other people in, in the industry are creating for some of these people are causing some long-term effects. Instead of us being able to just get to work, we've got to take sometimes months to break these barriers. Yeah, it's it's really it's it's because of our need for certainty. So imagine a person who you mentioned some people with medical problems. If you can explain all their medical problems away with one thing, that's very seductive. That's very attractive. And um, oftentimes when you get a person to make a change, even if that change is extreme or inaccurate, and they start to feel something, they start to feel better somehow, they're sold. You know, the, the classic is um, getting rid of sugar because, you know, sugar is the devil for everything. When people start cutting back on sugar, oftentimes, you know, I've had people that say they start exercising more. Um, they start drinking more water. They eat more nutritious foods and they don't understand. They start sleeping better and they don't consider those other behaviors as the main primary factors for why they started feeling better. They think because they cut out the sugar, that's automatically why they started feeling better. And it wasn't. Um, and that's because the seductive narrative mixed in with their own personal experience of feeling better for whatever reason that was. It, it just it's the ultimate um, kind of gel for for believing in bullshit uh, <laughs> in the nutrition space in the fitness space yeah i think it just be i mean i've been at it a long over 20 years so i've seen so many things come in and then come back because i've been in the space as long as i have i start you know way but you you mentioned adkins and of course that was that's going back way when that was like really popular it gained a lot of steam then went away and then keto reared its ugly face. And it's just these kind of, almost like these refindings of stuff that doesn't make any sense, but people just have another way to sell something or they run out of shit that they're already selling and go back to the old drawing boards. It's very cyclical. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a cycle. Um, and they use the same fucking narratives. It's the same narratives. If you look at different dieting groups, it's always a conspiracy, you know, um, the, the, the carnivore keto people always say, oh, it was Ansel Keys in the sugar industry. The vegans will say, oh, it's the dairy industry. Um, the paleo people will say, oh, it's, it's seed oils or something like that. Everyone wants a boogeyman to blame. Um, mix it in with a narrative about our ancestors, you know, people who, let's talk about our ancestors, uh, throw in a whole bunch of testimonies you know, tell people to, to try it through personal experience, explain all away all their problems, all their issues with one villain or, or a, a condensed series of villains. And then you have an easy, instant, successful marketing health campaign for bullshit. Um, it, it's really, when you see so much of this shit, it sounds, it literally sounds the same. You just see right past it. Um, it's very cyclical. It's very rehashed, reused. It's the same shit over and over and over again by different groups. They all sound the same. I think it's funny that you bring that up because you can start thinking uh, like the people that I'm, I'm not gonna start bringing up a bunch of names, but uh, just the same, I'm, we'll probably end up thinking of the same people, but you start, you can kind of replace those people, those like that, those groups, whether it's keto or intermittent fasting or whatever, any group, insert group here. And we can think of the way that they're attracting people and they're all gonna be exactly identical, just their own tribes. Yeah, you just, you just literally replace the fucking wording and it's the exact same argument. 
big industry is doing this, insert whatever industry you want is doing this to you. And that is the cause of all your health issues. Here is my solution. Buy into my solution and you will feel better. No, I think it's so, I mean, how fucked is that when it's everything is the answer and everything is wrong, right? Everybody else is wrong and I'm right. And you need to buy into my thing if you want to be your healthiest possible. Um, and it's fucking insane. If we literally listen to influencers who tell us what's wrong with the industry or what's wrong with nutrition or health, we would never eat or exercise or do anything because they all say different shit but it sounds the exact same. The narrative is the exact same. See, and I think it's so funny where, you know, where I'll get an onboard a new client and we start talking about kind of what they've done, things like diets that they've tried and that kind of thing. And it's always comes down to the same thing. I tried insert diet here. It stopped working for me. So I just went back to what I was doing. So it kind of goes back to like the psychology of things. Really. I think that science really opens up the doors to knowing what we should be doing in no uncertain terms, but then it's really like the behaviors and the psychology of dieting. I think the skills of dieting, and that's how I've kind of come to terms of, of using it is just more dieting skills to give the people mm -hmm. different uh, skill sets. And for people to be really patient when it comes to whatever diet approach that they're taking, because the, those same diet skill sets are going to really gain them a lot of benefit. So, um, just seeing some of the stuff that you've done, like research on compassion and uh, disorders and that kind of stuff. How do you feel someone can just try to be more compassionate with themselves when it comes to whatever journey they pick through fitness and nutrition? So it's kind of a, a cognitive distortion to think like there's all or nothing sort of deal when it comes to change. Change is not a straight and narrow path. You don't give your all and expect it to get the exact outcome that you want. Um, you have to expect failures. You have to expect change to be slow. You have to expect even the tiniest changes to be a win. And you have to congratulate yourself for what you actually do. Um, and I think compassion is realizing that you're an imperfect human being. You're going to fuck up. You're going to make mistakes, but that's okay. The only time you truly fail is when you give up. Um, that is real failure when you give up. But if you don't give up, you can always keep trying, keep doing, keep experimenting. Um, and that's really what this process is about. It's a process. It's a journey. Uh, when you get to, when, you, when you're on a journey, it's not like a marathon where you're trying to win a race. There's no race. There's no one you're racing against. There's no reason to compare yourself to somebody else. There's no reason to kick your own ass because it's not helping you. It didn't help you in the past when you failed. It's not going to help you now. So apparently if what you're doing isn't working out for you, if the way you're treating yourself isn't doing you any favors, then why are you, why do you keep doing that? Mm -hmm. You need to try something different. And I, I mean, I, there's so many reasons why people would be beating themselves up when it comes to the psychology behind why they're even getting into feeling they need to lose weight to begin with. And yeah. some of the stuff you brought up about the uh, um, anti-diet space, I to, that wasn't even a thing before. And I think it's just, um, there, I think there's probably a many, many, a multitude of reasons for, for it to come up. But why do you think that's gaining so much traction, like the anti-diet space or cultures? I think in my opinion, um, we have, we've, since the 1980s, we've had nearly a doubling of global obesity. This is a very persistent problem. 
And within that problem, there's issues such as, you know, weight stigma, um, body shaming, you know, I experienced that myself. And I think as, and as well as couple that with a lot of the failures with fad dieting, because there's a lot of failures with it that nobody likes to talk about in these diet groups and the tribalism within those groups. I think anti-diet is a direct response to all of these different factors. And I think it has a lot of good intentions with it as far as focusing on behaviors, not necessarily the scale. I'm treating individuals as individuals who are imperfect and uh, deserving of compassion, uh, helping people with their relationships with food so they're not fixating on cutting things out, but actually enjoying their lives. I think these are all very important considerations we should all use and think of as practitioners and professionals. However, where it goes off the deep end is with some of the more activist political rhetoric that goes on in these circles. So we go on from a very rational argument that, um, you know, maybe some people shouldn't fixate on the scale. And maybe a lot of times people shouldn't do these fad diets because they don't work. So, oh, weight means nothing in terms of health and all diets are bad for you and diets are racist and sexist and whatever is. Um, that's kind of where we go off the deep end <laughs> with anti-diets. <laughs> yeah, and I think to many times we'll see like what's going on in, in culture, pop culture gravitate obviously into the fitness industry because people want to sell shit or people want to get their message kind of heard. And we start to see obviously many things going on in the world right now. Um, and I think pulling in some of those things into uh, a space where it's already clouded with so much craziness, but then to pull in other things that don't, uh, maybe that's not the best platform for that to be in. Um, I think it's really, it clouds up the issue for people that are really confused already. Yeah, it does. Because you go from one person, one guru selling a person that they have to always lose weight and um, go on their special diet. So you go to another professional who's seemingly a registered dietitian telling them that no diets matter. Weight loss is never the solution, no matter what context. And, um, you know, if you want to lose weight, you're, you're fat phobic or something like that, something crazy, you know? And it's like, what the fuck do I believe? Like, what do I do? They're just, mm. people are just so confused compared to a more rational approach where it's like, you could have whatever you want to have in your diet within reason, but don't forget like eating healthy foods matters too, mm -hmm. because you also want to be a healthy person. You want to be able to move around, not be nutrient deficient, not have too much body fat on you. You know, you don't want to be underweight, overweight, whatever. Like you want to be at a good point for you, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and that's staying through the behaviors. That's, that's, that's of course an important aspect of it, but this rational sort of argument of this, this sort of middle ground argument that there's many factors that we need to consider kind of gets drowned out by uh, trying to get follows, trying to get clicks, trying to get likes by being more and more and more extreme. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the hard part about this conversation in general with all these different groups screaming at each other. Yeah. And I think everyone, no one's really talking. Everyone's just, it's just the need to be right mm. instead of the, the need to try to actually make a difference. My, I think uh, my old man gave me the best advice ever. And I used it for a lot of different areas in my, uh, my life. And he said, you could be right or you could be happy. Sometimes you can't be both. So sometimes it's just, 
I think a lot of us who are very science-based, like myself included, where I just, I'm not going to fight with someone. I don't, I don't waste my time with that, but I'll definitely put my foot in, put in, put my foot in the sand, so to speak, and contribute where I feel I can make a difference. But I think it's crazy when you have people that are in other industries completely or doctors of something unrelated Mm -hmm. because they have those letters in the beginning or at the end of their name, then it's, uh, they have more credibility because of those little letters. Yeah. It's, it's a shame because there's a lot of MDs who give a lot of bullshit about nutrition um, because you think about it all that time going through med school, being a doctor, it's not easy. It's so much fucking easier to just cash out and state some bullshit and use your credibility um, and then make a couple supplement lines, make a couple of books, and you're probably going to make way more money way easier as a medical doctor. Um, I just, I think, I think from a business standpoint, it's fucking perfect. You right. write a fucking book, sell some fucking supplements, state some bullshit online, use your credibility and boom, you know, instant success. And then the, the, the popular media, the news eats that shit up too. So it doesn't make things better. Um, but it's just, yeah, with this, this, uh, this kind of, um, we were talking about uh, the scope of knowledge and scope of practice. A lot of times we're seeing that professionals do not have that respect when it comes to the field of nutrition. It's its own field in its own right. It's its own scientific discipline with its own nuances. Just because you understand medical science doesn't necessarily mean you understand nutrition. It's like there's so many sub-disciplines within biology or psychology, for instance. It's like me, if, I, if I'm a master in one field, if I'm a master in that one sub-discipline, it doesn't mean that I'm a master of the whole entire field. It's not like that. Um, and it's the same thing with nutrition. Doctors do not have extensive nutrition training. That's not what they're going to medical school for. If you're a cardiologist, you know a shit ton about the heart. Am I going to expect you to know everything about nutrition? Probably not, because that's not what you train for. And I think it's super interesting, like meeting guys like Scott Forbes and some of the very limited interactions I've had with some of the other really uh, elite of kind of what we do, uh, just just to see that their their PhD was done on a single amino acid. You know, like, just, yeah. like that depth of knowledge, like that kind of, and of course the, the wealth of knowledge that comes along with that, but the, on a single amino acid, just to think of just the amount of knowledge, just about that. So you can't imagine someone who's studying some other field of medicine, let alone it's nutrition based, the kind of knowledge that they would have compared to someone, some of the people that we might uh, interact with. Yeah. And I met some, some individuals who their PhDs on cell metabolism and nutrition. And that's a very, very, very specific component within nutrition. So it's like, you know, even, even individuals like some dietitians, some dietitians are, are specialists in oncology. Some are uh, specialists in renal function. Some are mm-hmm. specialists in disordered eating. So it's like their specific practice cannot be applied to all different practices within their own discipline. So mm-hmm. it's like, how is a medical doctor from a completely different field, completely unrelated to nutrition, going to be a master of nutritional science, let alone any other discipline of science? Paul Saladino, the number one person I always call out for this, who thinks that he understands everything because he's, he's a board certified psychiatrist. 
You know, do you understand psychiatry? Do you, I don't think you understand nutrition, environmental science, public health, uh, vaccine development. I don't think you understand all that other different shit because it takes so much time to specialize in one thing, let alone five or 10 other different things. Yeah, I mean, no matter, and credit to them for the time that they spent getting their PhDs in whatever discipline they pick. Like, yeah. we're not shitting on all, any of your doctors out there, we're not shitting on you for what you did. It's, I think it's, it takes a crazy amount of time and effort to be able to do what they did, but it's stay in your fucking lane sometimes too, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when, when, I'm, when I'm quoting the literature, I readily admit that there's people smarter than me. You know, like I have doctors who follow me and they're fucking intelligent. They're smarter than me when it comes to their discipline. And yes, they are. If I wanted to ask a question on immunology, I'm not going to pretend that I know about immunology. I'm going to go ask someone that I know because they're an expert in that. You know, it's just my thing is like when we're not experts in specific topics, that's when we seek the experts. We don't pretend that we are the experts. You know, it's yeah. about humility. Um, and that's what makes us honest brokers of information. That's what makes us credible um, because we don't know everything. So we need to know the people who do know that specific thing. And that's who I want to be. The person who knows the, the person who knows that shit. I don't want to be the person who pretends that they're the fucking expert in that. That's not what I'm about. No, and I think, I mean, when you get into the Dunning-Kruger kind of idea of, for me, when I got it, first got into fitness, like strength conditioning, fitness, uh, I, of course, I knew everything that there was to, to know. And then I started to meet other real coaches, as I like to, to call them. Because I had zero experience, thought I knew everything. And then you meet one person that really kicks open a door of knowledge for you. And that made a big difference. So I started to pursue that myself to kind of seek out these people that I knew knew more than me because I was, I felt I was smart enough to know what I didn't know instead of pretended all the shit that I didn't know. Socrates was the wisest man in Athens because he knew for a fact that he didn't know enough. And that was what separated him from everybody else. Um, and I think that that's something that's very hard nowadays with pride and ego facilitated by social media we want likes we want attention we want to look like we're credible and know everything all the fucking time and it's like um no we don't and i think there's great power in admitting that admitting that i don't know certain things when people ask me like what's the best supplement for this this and that and i'm like i don't know i don't know I, I, bro, I, I don't know you. You just DM me out of fucking nowhere. I don't know anything about you. And you're asking me this <laughs> shit. Like, I don't know. Or someone asking me, what's the best diet? I don't know. I could give you the general advice, the general information, the general resources, but I do not know. I'm not your coach. And even if I was your coach, I probably still wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, like, and, and that's, that's the unsexy answer that nobody wants to hear. I don't know but it's a must. It's something that we must state all the time because we don't know everything. Well, I think it's really valuable to, to bring that up to just the idea of it's okay to not know. And I think mm -hmm. it shows more confidence. I'd have way more confidence in someone if they would just flat say, I don't fucking know. I don't know what that is. I've never heard of that. Um, instead of people just trying to like put, put the show on of knowing, I think confidence kills a lot of a lot of more dreams and what it kind of produces because people, instead of seeking out things, they just, they already know it. I don't have to do that. Cause I know everything. Yeah. Um, see, I'm using my philosophy right now because 
My favorite philosopher, Epictetus, he always said that you cannot learn what you already know. And he was saying in a sarcastic manner, if you think you know everything, there's nothing I can fucking teach you. So I'm not going to teach you anything. You think that you know it. You know, I have people who are very cocky, you know, uh, like I know, I know this. I had like this one carnival guy, uh, you know, like, what are you talking about? These studies, this, this, and that. And I explained to him why the methodology was flawed and he was stuck and he was trying to justify it, trying to justify it. And it's like, bro, if you want to be right, if you think that, you know, there's nothing I can teach you. There's nothing I can help you with. If you want to know, if you want to have an actual conversation then put your ego in check, there's a lot of shit that you don't know. Cause I already went over these studies. How long ago? I already went over these arguments. How fucking much I know about this shit. More than you do, because you're, you're believing that vegetables are toxic. You're already down the fucking rabbit hole of nonsense. Like, come on now. You know, but people don't think that. People don't see that. Um, and it, sometimes it's heartbreaking. But then you get those few people that you sit down with. You know, like I had a really good conversation with one lady and explained to her the history of BMI and why it's not the devil or the end of the world. And she's like, you know, thank you for explaining that to me. I did not know about those things. And I want to understand this better. And I'm like, see, that's the right attitude to have. Like, hey, I didn't know about this study. I didn't know about this history of this, of this different topic. And thank you for the resources about it. I appreciate that. And I've had people set me straight too. There's been people who set me straight about um, saturated fat. You would think that I know about that. And there's people that said, no, you're wrong about this, this, and this, and this. Or I've had people set me straight about protein or set me straight about um, sugar and carbohydrates and stuff like that. And I appreciate every single one of those people because I became smarter because of it. I would have been stupid and still saying the same dumb shit repeatedly <laughs> over and over and over again, not learning shit. You know, so I, I thank those people for that. But I think it's kind of leading into the next question too about to, um like debunking those uh, nutrition myths that you do so well and the misinformation and kind of like the, like the hard call outs. And I don't think that really happens enough when it comes to people really just like seeing it like on TikTok or just on Instagram, of course, but um, just like the hard call outs of the stuff that just doesn't make sense. And I think as uh, I think you do such a great job of, uh, of just really digging in and showing people that maybe are have seen these videos or these clips and you just do a really good job of just saying, fuck no, what are you talking about, bro? Like, I just, that's some of the shit that I just, I think you do the best. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. That's the thing. I got to make more TikTok videos and more of those call outs. But my thing is like, I think it detracts from the overall message. Like I want to teach people how to, uh fish rather than giving them a fish you know like when i ask people quite when i ask questions like what the fuck are you talking about where's your citations what's this what's that i'm saying that because i want people to start thinking yeah where is their citations how do they know this where what evidence do they have that that's true or not because people could state anything everything and anything it doesn't mean that it's correct and when you're stating it as a statement of fact you have to have the facts that's my thing. It's one thing saying, this is my opinion. I can be wrong, you know, but this is how I feel. I, how the fuck can I debunk that? You're already stating that's your opinion. It's like saying that um, your favorite flavor is like your favorite ice cream flavor is chocolate. And I say, provide a citation for that. I'm going to sound fucking stupid. There's no <laughs> citation for ice cream flavors. It's like chocolate. <laughs> it's chocolate. Like, you know, <laughs> but if you're saying it's a fact that uh, it's a fact 
that chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream ever. If you're saying that, then I'm like, where's your citations for that? You're saying that's a fact. There's a difference, you know? And that's what I want to facilitate in people, this sort of uh, scientific skepticism, this, all right, nutrition is a science. Let's respect it as a science. So if you're, you're stating claims about nutrition as a science, where are your citations to back that up? To show that that's the case, you know? And I'm seeing this with uh, strength training. I'm seeing this with pain science. I'm seeing this with uh, some skincare girls. I, you know, I have the science-based skincare people that follow me sometimes. You know, I'm seeing this all over. And that's what I'm trying to facilitate in the nutrition space. Where's the citations? Um, and when you get the citations, how to understand the nuances of those citations, which is also another deeper layer into it that a lot of people are starting to get, but aren't there yet. So they're getting the, okay, where's the evidence? But they're not getting, okay, what's the strengths and limitations of the study? What's the methodology looking like? What are the statistics used? What are they telling me? Um, how is this in context with the overall literature? You know, is, was this meta-analysis conducted properly? What were the studies analyzed? What are the effect sizes uh, between the different groups, et cetera, et cetera, all that other sh shit and jazz. People aren't there yet on social media with that. Uh, coaches, lay people, et cetera, they're not there yet, um, unfortunately. Um, and I want to get them there too. But I think the first step is, is really facilitating that. Where's the citations? Where's the evidence? How do you know that? Can, can you show it? Like anecdotal evidence isn't enough anybody could state anything that worked for them that doesn't mean that's going to work for everybody you know yeah no i think that, it's we, we see so much of the misinformation being spread or just some tiktok is crazy to me man like it's just these you know one of them <laughs> i just gotta keep laughing every time i think of it some super jack dude saying you should never eat carbohydrates and fat together because it makes you fat <laughs> so but i mean to someone who has no knowledge who's heard a bunch of like cloudy bullshit they might go shit that and he's trying to explain it away and you're like this is, makes zero sense but i could see how that could make sense to someone that doesn't know any better yeah yeah exactly and that's that's the reason why i try to be active on tiktok but tiktok is very toxic so TikTok is very superficial. So when I call a lot of these people out, they'll say, well, bro, you look fat. Or where's your six-pack abs? Or this is not. And I'm like, is that how you gauge quality information? Someone's looks? You know? I'm like, no wonder you're not making progress. No wonder you're not where you want to be. Um, and no wonder you still fall into this trap. Because your meter for gauging quality evidence just isn't tuned correctly. So that's why I kind of stepped back from TikTok. That's the big reason why I stepped back. And that's why I'm focused on Instagram because Instagram is a more curated audience. It's a more mature audience. Um, the demographics are a lot better. A lot of times with TikTok, it's getting more educational, but still a lot of teenagers and kids. And they're just not on that cognitive level to be like, you know, um, let's think deeper about this. A lot of them just aren't there yet. <laughs> oh, my, just aren't there. My daughter and I just send pet clips that we see back and forth. That's that's pretty much about as far as we get down the the TikTok uh, crazy highway. So, um, 
when it comes to some of the like the uh, misinformation because this is kind of the stuff that I really wanted to touch on with you because again I just think you do this really really good uh, like the single food approach when it comes to dieting hey you need to cut out this food or you need to cut out this macronutrient um how do you like you how how do you approach when someone messages you for that kind of information um what would you how do you approach that when it comes to how someone's trying to get the facts when it comes to getting rid of a single food or a macronutrient so i try to get them to focus on the pattern the overall pattern of their diet it's not the single food that's going to make or break your health um it will be like the analogy I like to use is someone who eats very highly processed foods, let's say always eats fast food or whatever, but has one apple. And they think that that one apple that, eat is, that they eat is automatically going to make them healthy. Everyone who's listening to this might say that's foolish, right? But people um, ironically believe that uh, having one donut is going to break their diet. Uh, when the rest of their diet is looking in order as far as their goals, eating nutritious, uh, health-promoting foods. Um, and it's like, come on now. We got to think bigger, bigger picture. It's not about what you do to, today, this day, this moment right now. It's what you do over the long term, the weeks, the months, the years. When people care about diseases like heart disease, when people think about cancer, when people think about dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever, those disease progress over time. Um, and diet, when it comes to the, the diet and health interaction, that happens over time, mm -hmm. which is why I said the epidemiology is important because like, of course, like um, nutrient deficiency matters, right? That's very acute. But a lot of times when we're talking about nutrition and health, we care about the long-term, we care about longevity over time. What is the pattern over time? Why are you fixated over the small little things? You're trying to major in the minors, as Lane Norton always says. You know, like, it makes no sense. You're stepping over dollars to pick pennies, caring about, oh, should I cut this food out or this food or this food? And it's like, well, what is your overall diet looking like? And maybe you should cut out that food, depending on if it's, if it's not helping you out or if you don't want to eat that or whatever. Like, maybe, or maybe you should add something. Or maybe you should do something else. You know, but people get so fixated on these elimination diets and they're not sustainable first, most of the time. And the second of the time, the justification for doing it is not based on evidence or science or recommendations from professionals, like medical professionals, but is based on their favorite influencers who said that weed is bad for them and they need to stop eating it to stop having brain fog. You see how stupid that sounds? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, and I. I think it's awesome that uh, you're, you are gaining popularity as well, because I think it's really starting to show maybe a bit of a shift where towards kind of the message that you're sending as well. And one of the things that I really, I found super, super fascinating was um, your stance on obesity as a disease. Yes. So I would love for you kind of, you know, it's a limited platform that I have, but I would love to hear some of your thoughts on, on that. So we know that um, the body likes to maintain homeostasis, and this extends even to weight. Um, when you go in deficit, your body tries to combat that. You know, this is defense mechanisms to get you to regain the weight. 
um, even when you overconsume calories, you know, any energy expenditure can increase. We see this in the overfeeding trials and overfeeding studies. However, with obesity, it's a chronic caloric surplus over time. So the underlying, uh, I guess, way that the body maintains homeostasis via body weight is dysfunctional, it's dysregulated. Um, and this is for a plethora of reasons. This includes the environment, this includes psychology, this includes actual biology, the genetics, et cetera. But my thing is obesity is a disease because you have uh, too much adipose tissue, just, just too much adipose tissue. And this can be detrimental um, for a number of reasons, including to cardiometabolic health, um, risk of cancer, uh, and quality of life. You're not able to move as much. You're not able to do certain things, you're very limited. And it leaves you susceptible to a whole bunch of other health outcomes and conditions. And the reason why I say it's a disease, I state this in agreement with other medical organizations, is because it gets people to take it seriously. And it also brings attention to the, the pathogenesis of the condition itself because it doesn't happen overnight. It's not voluntary. It's not like people ask for this to happen to them. And it's not conducive to their health long-term most of the time. It's a, it's, a, it's a disease state because so many things can go wrong compared to not. <laughs> There's just so much shit that it could happen with a person who has a BMI over 40, for instance. Like, compared to someone who doesn't. Um, and we were scratching the surface and uh, trying to combat this disease state. But people often state that, you know, those who are obese are correlated to having these different conditions and correlation does equal causation. That's the biggest argument out here all the fucking time. And it's true, correlation doesn't equal causation, but it misses the context and the nuance. If the association between obesity and a particular disease is persistent in many different populations, many different cohorts over time, and we know the mechanisms as to why the association is there, as well as we have intervention trials with things like, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Professor Roy Taylor, his work about type 2 diabetes and obesity and the pathogenesis of that and the pathology of that being connected to having too much body fat. And we talk about atopic fat deposition where um, fat is kind of uh, stored in the organs where it shouldn't be too much. We start getting into that. We start getting into that type of research. You start seeing all these different pieces that fit and you start to see why the association is what it is. And it can be explained through multiple different pathways of converging research. So. Yeah, correlation does not equal causation, but we can infer causation from the many pathways of evidence that we do have leading to a particular result. Are there exceptions to the rule? Of course. But does that mean that you're going to be an exception to the rule if you're uh, morbidly obese, that you're going to be automatically metabolically healthy? You're rolling the dice with that. I'm not sure why would you want to do that. You know, so instead of justifying a, a disease state, we should try to help individuals not get to that disease state in the first place 
and get out of it. And there are many treatments to do this, not just lifestyle interventions, but drugs and surgeries. There's a whole field of medicine dedicated to the study of obesity, obesity medicine, you know? So it's definitely more complicated than people try to make it seem. Yeah, and I think with, obviously with genetics and epigenetics, everything plays a role. And, you know, socioeconomics, like there's just so many facets to it that many people just don't really understand. Um, what do you think, because uh, you have said, you mentioned that you came from a different uh, socioeconomic kind of up- upbringing, eating foods that were very um, calorically dense, just quote unquote cheaper foods, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you, f- how do you feel some of that really fits into some of those pieces of like the genetics, epigenetics and socioeconomic standings? So we know there's a clear, there's a clearly strong association between lower socioeconomic status and obesity. I've written about this before, because if you're in a lower socioeconomic status, you're often living in certain neighborhoods. And within these neighborhoods, there's often more fast food outlets. There's often, you often have less access to nutritious foods. There's often issues with transportation. Um, We had these problems when I was growing up, getting to, getting to a grocery store. And the affordability, the perceived value of the food um, in the food environment, you know, it seemed like more expensive to get a salad than compared to a $1 cheeseburger at McDonald's. Um, And the cheeseburger tasted way better. It lasted (laughs) way longer. You know, like it it just, it just tasted way better. So it's like, you know, so it's like factoring all these things in and the lack of education because Coming from a low socioeconomic background, we often often have individuals with lower education, so we don't really see necessarily the value of why am I rationally going to buy this healthy food? Yeah, it might be good for me, but you know why do it? Like, what's the point? Why, why do I need to care about micronutrients like that? Like, I don't understand what those are. I don't understand the nuances of nutrition. I just want to eat. I just want to feel good. I'm trying to work a a three hour shift. No, no, not three hour shift. Like a a double shift, you know, at whatever labor job that I have to support my, my family of, of five or something, you know, like, why the fuck am I going to care about eating, eating whatever spinach at whatever time? And no, and there's also like the ability to prepare food, to cook food. Um, that's another important uh, aspect to it as well. And it, it's just a, a lot of different things that went on with us. Growing up, I was, uh, we were homeless, so I was often moving from shelter to shelter. We often had to eat what was there, what the government gave us, which was bologna sandwiches, not the most nutritious meal to have, as well as, you know, we often liked to eat fast food because we often moved all over the place. We didn't have time to sit there and cook something and try to feed ourselves, and we tried to, we did, um, but when we went to the grocery store, it was often cheaper to buy like packaged foods, pre-packaged foods, things like that. You know, um, probably the most expensive thing we'll get was meats because we like to cook some meats. Um, but we didn't consider like the fruits and veggies and stuff like that all the time. And that was just because of our budget, you know, and there was just a lot that went into it. Yeah. I, how would you, so what would be your thoughts on early, early education of nutrition, cooking, um, how do you think that can contribute maybe to uh, alleviating some of the, like there's like what in the States, like 70% of the people are overweight. 
now, something uh, to that effect? Yeah, for, for the U.S., I think over one-third of the population can be categorized as obese. Don't quote me on that. I'm not okay. sure about the overweight statistics. Okay. Um, but um, I, I think early education is essential and important. But let's not forget about access. Let's not forget about um, resources. Let's not mm-hmm. forget about, um, in addition to the knowledge, giving time. Time is valuable. Um, and people need to have the actual stuff to, in order to cook and people need to have the actual time to do it. And people need to have the access to be able to go down and walk to the store and go grab some groceries. It shouldn't be three miles away, you know, then, then it's probably not going to happen. You know, it's other considerations outside of just, well, people just need to know they need to eat healthier. So I, I think a lot of people know that they should be eating healthier. I just think it's, it's a little bit more difficult for them to do it, you know, and um, that's something that, People just think it's all about willpower. It's not. It's, it's always deeper than that. Um, and speaking from a person who was obese um, and is currently still struggling with their weight sometimes, you know, here and there, it's definitely harder than just, oh, just work out, eat less, move more, um, stop being a baby, you know, tough it out, you know, tough it out, tough it out. It's, it's deeper than that. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of people would not want to be obese. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they could... Yeah, no one's going to willingly choose. Yes, I want to be morbidly obese. Yes. Okay. Like, I'm yeah, so, <laughs> uh, pretty sure most people do not. You ever seen my 300-pound life? Uh, I'm pretty sure those people did not wake up one day and said, you know what? I want to be 500 pounds, and I want, like, five firemen to have to break me out of my house and go to the hospital. Like, I doubt they woke up and said that. Um, but, yeah, off my, off my high horse. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's, I mean, it's so easy for people that, um, that are kind of on the outside looking in when it comes to somebody who is obese to not know like the amount of struggle that they, who knows the, the reasons why they found that, you know, whether it's the comfort in food or the feel good of food, maybe there's nothing else. Maybe some people just don't have any other good shit going on and good food is just tastes great and it never let you down. So um, I think a lot of people kind of outside looking in who've never had to struggle or seen many people struggle with it. Um, I think just to kind of find a way to get them to open up their eyes to be a little bit more sensitive, I guess, in a way to uh, the needs of some people who are uh, obese as well could go a long way. Yeah. And I want people to think about like anytime they really struggled in their lives, how many times did like, when did telling someone telling you to get over it actually helped you? There's some people where it does fucking help them. Don't get me wrong. Just sometimes where it does fucking help them. But how many times did that truly help you? Some, most of the time it doesn't. So it's like when you go through your hard shit, you often need a plan. You often need support. You often need resources. You often need a whole bunch of different shit. Same thing as with someone who's obese. You know, the most predict one of the predictive outcomes for long term weight loss success, if we look at the look ahead trial, was support, was reaching out to professionals and having that support. They need that support. It's not just about education. No, and, um, that's one of the, what I've found so far. I have got, uh, I've got a, a group in some, uh, private clients and that kind of stuff, of course, when it comes to nutrition. And that's what I really, I find 
was really super interesting to me was the reliance on the support for that group. Like it kind of chokes me up a little bit to, to think about it, to be honest with you. Um, it was something that my wife and I just wanted to, to do because we wanted to share like my, the, the amount that I've been able to learn and the people that I can connect with when it comes to nutrition, that was kind of the big thing. But then it came down to the amount of support just in a fucking Facebook group that I really overlooked when it came to how valuable that component was going to be. To me, it was just, hey, we'll start a group too and we'll have it on Facebook and it'll be okay. But this is, I'm going to give them the information that they need. That's so almost inconsequential to, to what the value of that group does. No, it keeps them accountable. Hey, did you guys wake up and do your exercise or whatever this morning? Yeah, I did. No, I'm feeling a bit down. And other people telling you, no, you know, you got this. You could do this. You know, having people support you and, and make you feel like you can. The, and, you know, and also sharing that struggle that other people are struggling too. It's not just you. It makes you realize like, yo, I'm not alone in this. I could do this with other people. I could, do, I, I, I could rely on other people. I'm not alone. I got mm-hmm. this. We could do this. We can do this. It's not just about me anymore. It's about we. We can do this. We can get towards our goals. There's also the competition aspect of it. I want to yeah. beat the other person. You know? Fucking right, eh? <laughs> yeah, I want to beat the other person, man. Fuck, fuck them. They, they keep like saying this. They keep posting these pictures and shit in progress. You know, I want to get there. You know? You need that. You need that. You need that. You do. No, I think it's so valuable too. Like I've been fortunate enough to work in facilities like with you know, with uh, some pro athletes that I, I'm fortunate enough to call my friends now and to see them interact with, I call them everyday champions. So just people kind of the, the quote unquote normal people is what some people might say, normal gym, regular gym goers and the interactions that you see a pro athlete on their level, bringing that kind of intensity and that kind of jam to their workouts. And then people get to see like how the other side really lives. And they're like, damn, now I know why he or she is such a kick-ass athlete. They just work tirelessly. And then you see that effort rub off on everyone else around them. It's so awesome. So to find a way to cultivate that in groups, I think is really powerful. Yeah, sometimes you need to see the guy at the bench right next to you lifting a little bit more to say, you know what? I'm going to push myself a little bit more. Fuck that. I see the guy lifting over there heavy. I want to do it too. Let's fucking do it. And then boom, you make more progress. Yeah, that's awesome. Some of my best lifts have happened because my, my boys hyped me up. Because my, my <laughs> training partner hyped me up. So I was like, all right, we're going to fucking do this. And then we did it. Some of those, those best lift videos ever, hype videos come from high schools when everyone's all around like in foot, like football rooms, you know, and they're in their strength and conditioning coaches. Yeah. Everyone's losing their shit. And Buddy gets on and does a squat that he probably never could have done with that, with that much energy in a room. Like that just thinking about it gets me gets me going it's awesome um yeah thinking of like the idea of motivation versus long-term success like how do you think those two are different and kind of like similar in some ways so motivation is a good starter it's it's like the 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 lighter that starts the flame you know but it's not sustainable it's often temporary it's often fleeting because you're not always going to be motivated you know, there's going to be days where you're going to feel like complete shit and you do not want to get up. You do not want to train, you do not want to eat right, you do not want to do what you have to do. So what do you do those days? Because those days count. And you're going to have more of those days than the opposite. I guarantee it. 
Um, and this is where we get into long-term sustainable sustainability. And long-term sustainability, we said support matters because it helps keep you accountable, but also habits, doing things, little things, little wins that get you going that you don't necessarily have to think about, but they kind of kickstart the process and make it so much easier for you to do little things that still give you, uh, push you along the way towards your goal. I think that's very undervalued as well. Focusing on habits, focusing on systems and process rather than outcomes, mm-hmm. um, focusing on behaviors rather than outcomes, because you can't control the outcome. This is stoic in me. You can't control the outcome, but you can control the intent. You can control the desire. You can control um, what you try to do um, and trying your best. And that's better than nothing. That's better than giving up. Um, Because the outcome can always be out of your goal. You could try to shoot for losing 20 pounds in a couple months, but then you lose 15 pounds. What the fuck are you going to do then? Yeah. (laughs) You're going to feel like shit, even though you lost 15 pounds. Even though you went from your baseline to losing 15 pounds, which is amazing progress, but you didn't hit 20, so you feel like shit. Why? Why would you do that to yourself? Focus on the process. I think it's almost like that... uh... Uh, like that Gary V sort of approach to just love the work, you know, fall in love with the work. Don't worry about the rest of the shit. Don't worry about the end product. That's going to come. I think it's uh, to kind of pull in some of that sort of scenario of just find something to love in what you're doing. Um, so when it comes to nutrition and, or to uh, any, or any part of it, when it comes to even just like in the, in the context of weight loss, just find something that you can gravitate to and stick to that is that uh, your weight loss doesn't give a shit what your timeline is like. No, and the thing is, if you could stick to some shit, you're already ahead of the curve. There's a lot of people looking for quick gimmicks. There's a lot of people looking for quick fixes, and they're going to fail. Just the statistics are speaking, they're most likely going to fail. So if you can stick with something, you're already ahead of the curve. You're already ahead. You're already winning. Whether that's slow progress, whether that's incremental steps, you're winning, you're going somewhere. And we have to get rid of the instant gratification that we so often seek and realize that this is a long-term game. You're going to be in this for years. You're probably going to be in this your whole entire fucking life. Like, <laughs> it's not going to be over. Like, there's going to be times where you're going to have rippling six-pack abs and there's probably going to be times where you have the fucking dad bod, like I got right now, you know, and... <laughs> and and then you just got to go back on the grind and got to go back to it. It's it's it fucking happens. It's a lifelong oh, process. I'm uh, I'm getting to the uh, I'm in I'm in the dark side of forties, so uh, shit has changed dramatically. So <laughs> just right the amount, <laughs> the amount of shit that you got to go through as you get older uh, that wasn't in the handbook. That's for damn sure. Um, <laughs> uh, some other stuff that I love that you talked about is more like diet cult behaviors. So things like keto, intermittent fasting, um, vegan, just any of them. I think some of it was uh, just almost like that cult-like behavior when it comes to people trying to find their tribe. Yeah. Yeah. I I think what's interesting was I was reading, I shared this paper about conspiracy theories not so long ago. I forgot the name of the author. Oh, shit. I forgot the name of the author, but she's a psychologist in the UK. And I remember because my buddy, uh, David Robert Grimes, mentioned her, who is amazing, by the way. You could get him on your podcast. 
I would definitely recommend that guy is fucking fantastic, brilliant person. Um, but so this this paper broke down the reasons why individuals believe in conspiracy theories, and one of them was the the sort of social component, feeling like you belong to something, feeling like you have a group, someone to relate to. You're not alone anymore, and that often feeds into uh, kind of cult like behaviors where it's no longer about you. They often get rid of the individual, the individual person. It's no longer about individuality. It's the collective. It's what the collective wants. And um, with, with these sort of diet groups, they have these overarching narratives. You often notice this. They have this kind of glamorization of their group compared to the rest of the world, compared to their enemies. And they often give themselves identifying markers like vegan, you know, keto, carnivore. Or a keto diet or a carnivore person, you're a carnivore, right? Like you're 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 a manly man. Like, oh yes, that's what your ancestors did. Yes, you know the the industry wants to feminize you. Uh, the soy is trying to feminize you, give you man boobs and stuff like that. You know the sugar industry is evil. The dietary guidelines are making everyone fat. It's the government's fault. You know, you stick with us. This is our group. This is our tribe. This is. This is us right now. This is what we're doing. You know, it's no longer about you. It's about health. It's about being healthy. Um, it, it, it's, it's often very perplexing that they often stress individual responsibility for health, but then they often blame all the problems on some other entity. Like that, you, you see the, the, the mm. contradiction right there? <laughs> that's, often, <laughs> that's often what we see. Like, you know, your health is in your hands. But this, this and this industry and the government is fucking you over for your health and it's their fault. All your problems are, are, are their fault. But it's also your, your, your responsibility too. It's like, what? Like, which one is it? Like, I don't know. <laughs> we pick one somewhere maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, but it's just these overarching romantic narratives mixed in with the community. And they often give you, uh, I, I often call them mantras, but I, also, I, I just call them ideological sound bites they give you stuff to repeat you know vegetables are toxic um, meat is murder um no satayo for carnivores no satayo paleo um only eat what nature intended or eat like your ancestors or something like that ancestral health you know whatever they often give you things to repeat um and they often try to justify it through a veil of credibility which is often through science just to, to use the authority of science in order to make you believe in what they want you to believe. This is, this is unique to sort of the diet cults in a way, is that they try to use science to justify their beliefs. Other, other groups do this as well, but, but the, the, the diet cults do this really well. No, they can we, find citations and, and really make a whole narrative. What, and especially when, it, when you're there when someone's trying to find something to belong and then someone is saying something that they can kind of relate to. And if they can murder basically a, a, a study that they can pull up and sort of make it sound like it makes sense and whether it's right or wrong and how they got that information. Um, I think it's many people are just looking for that sense of, I just want somewhere to belong. I need me a tribe. And just so happens someone, you know, insert, diet subset here kind of walk by at that at the wrong time for that individual 
Yeah, and they and they encourage you to believe this stuff, and they often reinforce you to believe this stuff, and they reward you for believing this stuff. So you have a lot of incentive to just adopt the beliefs of the group um, and get rid of your own individual thinking and thought, because oftentimes you get individuals who they just repeat what the group fucking says all the fucking time. <laughs> it gets on my nerves, but they just repeat what the group says because there's no individual thought or consideration behind it. They think it is, but it's not. Well, that's, I think it's really powerful to, to kind of see if someone is kind of pulled into that sort of a feeling, if they're in that, if they feel like they're stuck in that same sort of idea is to challenge someone in their group to see what, what happens. I think uh, I'm, I think it's important to have healthy conversations with whatever, whatever you're following. So whether it's uh, carnivore or keto or whatever the case, intermittent fasting doesn't matter what it is. I think it's important to have these challenging conversations with people that are in those, um, in those subsets. Um, so if someone is dug really deep in there, I think it's really important to, uh, to challenge them and say, okay, well, why do we, why is this going to save my life if I just eat meat or if I only eat for six hours a day, how is this going to really save my life? Yeah. And just be prepared to be disappointed. They're not <laughs> going to know. They're not going to know exactly why they're not going to have the right resources. The resources that are going to stay, is going to be stated out of context. This is just how it is. I've tried. I've tried to have these honest conversations and it's always led to disappointment. So I always leave the extremists alone because I'm most likely not going to change their minds. I try to follow, I try to get those people that are kind of in the middle that kind of are not sure and want to learn more. I try to get those people. That's who I'm really after. That's awesome. That's, so like, where do you, so now that you graduated, so like what's, uh, what's next for, for you? Everybody always asks that. That's, that's a good <laughs> question. Um, Probably doing grad school in philosophy. That's what I've been considering right now. Yeah. Doing a master's in philosophy or maybe something in psych or something else. I'm not sure yet. I'm just trying to figure it out. Um, kind of giving myself some time to just decompress this mind because there's so much shit that rattles on inside. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I think it's awesome that uh, for you to be able to kind of bring in that the idea of you know, the philosophy of, of the nutrition and of the science more so than not just, I mean, we're pretty, I guess, pretty narrow-minded just because of uh, the industry that, that I'm in too. But I think for you to kind of bring more of the uh, philosophy of science to, to light where maybe people just might find an interest on the science side of things where we can have more in-depth conversations. And uh, I think that's going to show a lot of value down the road for the amount of work that you're putting in for everybody. Trying. Trying, man. <laughs> so, Trying where can people everyone, <laughs> so where can everyone find you? Uh, follow me on Instagram. You know, at Mr. Cockfit, at mr.cogfit. Same thing on TikTok and Twitter. It's at Mr. Cockfit, no dot. Um, also, highly suggest everyone follow my uh, newsletter, Critical Nutrition. It's on Substack. It's really cool. I'm writing a lot of cool stuff for it. Um, and I'm going to try to release... I'm working on one about biohacking and longevity and the fear of death. It's going to be really cool. Ooh. Really cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, it sounds pretty wild, man. It's awesome. Uh, cool. So again, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate the time. 
Um, uh, I can't wait to dig in deeper for some other shit and some other uh, more nonsense, no nonsense bullshit that uh, that you're able to bring to the industry. Thank you for having me. Okay, man. We'll talk to you soon. Stop this.